Being 20-something can be exciting. It's a time in your life when you're often presented with great opportunities and once-in-a-lifetime adventures. But what happens when life throws you a major curveball? I'm George Podarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today is Suleika Jawad. She's a writer, advocate, public speaker, and cancer survivor. Suleika was 22 years old when she learned she had leukemia. She went on to write about her experiences with cancer in a New York Times column titled Life Interrupted, as well as in other publications. Here's Suleika reading a piece she wrote for Vogue magazine called Hair Interrupted. For as long as I can remember... I've felt like an outsider looking in. Between the ages of four and 18, I attended six schools on three continents. As the child of two immigrants, my mother is Swiss and my father is Tunisian, I discovered that my multicultural background was anything but cool or exotic to my classmates. Roll call on the first day of school was like showing up to class wearing underwear on the outside of my jeans. With a name as unpronounceable as Suleika Jawad, I found it hard to blend in. Sometimes that made me want to blend in all the more. Even my lunchbox was a source of embarrassment. All I wanted back then was a brown paper bag filled with typical all-American fare. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, snackables, pop-tarts, and gushers. Was that too much to ask for? I remember bursting through the door after school in a huff one day. Never, ever pack me chicken tagine for lunch again, I said. The contrast between the smelly, coagulated orange mess of chicken and the pristine, odorless beauty of a Pop-Tart had never felt sharper. Over time, the embarrassment of being the perpetual new kid hardened into resentment. I resented that my family had a French-only language policy at home. I resented that I had a multisyllabic name and that I was too young to legally change it to something more normal like Ashley or Jessica. And I resented that my mother, an artist with a flair for the eccentric and a sturdy sense of who she was and what she believed in, seemed to think it was so easy to be comfortable with not always fitting in. You're unique, she would tell me, forgetting that the word is a social albatross when you're a kid. I was mortified the day she came to pick me up at the bus stop wearing cross-country skis, a fluorescent yellow parka, and a backward baseball cap covering her spiky two-inch long hairdo. When I got to middle school and my family settled in upstate New York, I dreamed of having golden waist-length Rapunzel-like tresses, like the popular girls in the cheerleading squad, instead of my frizzy shoulder-length auburn hair. I tried everything. They knew me in the hair product aisle at the local CVS pharmacy, but no amount of roasting my hair with sun in or dousing it in long and strong could make me look like them. In the sixth grade, I even persuaded my mother to let me get a braided blonde weave. These were the memories that came rushing back to me on a muggy spring afternoon in May 2011 at the age of 22. Nothing of note was happening in the news that day, but the world that I knew was about to implode. Precautionary. That was the word that the doctor had used. He was talking about the bone marrow biopsy I had undergone a few days before, a fairly painful, invasive procedure that is rarely performed on young people. After months of flu-like symptoms that seemed resistant to the strongest antibiotics, it had been the next step. 
My skin had become so pale it looked almost translucent. Robin's egg blue, as if all of the veins had floated to the surface of my skin, was how I described it in my journal. Something was wrong, this much I knew, but the doctor reassured me that he didn't expect to find anything abnormal in my bone marrow. By the time my parents and I arrived at the clinic to hear the results of the biopsy, it was dusk. All of the staff and the other patients had gone home for the day. The lights in the waiting room had been dimmed, casting an ominous shadow on the baby food beige walls and stacks of outdated magazines. The doctor didn't mince words. You have something called acute myeloid leukemia, he said, enunciating the diagnosis like a foreign language teacher, instructing us in the pronunciation of a new vocabulary word. We need to act fast. A lot of people have asked me what it was like to hear that I had cancer at such a young age. What's the appropriate reaction to one's own cancer diagnosis? Are you supposed to break down in tears or faint or scream? I didn't do any of those things. Instead, I froze and repeated the word over and over in my head. Leukemia. 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 It sounded like an exotic flower. It was my next reaction, however, that really surprised me. Am I going to lose all my hair? I blurted out to the doctor. On balance, since I had just been diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, worrying about hair loss seemed petty and irrelevant, even narcissistic. But a bald head, the signature side effect of chemotherapy, was one of the few tropes that I knew about cancer. I needed to reassure myself by asking questions that were within the realm of my understanding. A question like, what's going to happen to me, could have lethal and terrifyingly unforeseeable consequences. My doctor confirmed that the chemo would take my hair as its prize within a week or so of starting treatment. Chemotherapy is a take-no-prisoner stylist. The thing that no one tells you when you lose your hair during chemo is that it doesn't happen all at once. The first evidence that mine was falling out appeared on my pillow. A mess of stray hair is spread across the fabric like a furry Jackson Pollock painting. Then, over the next few days, it started to come out in clumps. Finally, when only a few patches of hair were left on my head, I yanked the rest of it out with my bare hands. I felt like a gardener pulling weeds from damp soil. Within a few weeks, I could no longer recognize the person staring back at me in the mirror. Gaunt cheeks, bald head, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, skin as dry and white as chalk, and a waist that quickly shrank from a healthy size six to a double zero. But what hurt most were the invisible side effects of my illness, the isolation, the friends who stopped returning my calls after I got sick, the fear of dying before I had really begun to live my life, and maybe worst of all, coming to terms with the reality that the chemo had rendered me permanently infertile. Just like that, my life had split into two. There was Suleika BC before cancer and Suleika AC, and that's if luck was on my side. For the most part, my transformation had taken place within the privacy of the four walls of my hospital room. I could avoid the mirror hanging on the bathroom wall, but when I left the hospital for short breaks in between treatments, I couldn't shield myself from the stares of curious strangers. Everywhere I went, cancer spoke for me before I could speak for myself. 
I tried hiding beneath hats and headscarves and wigs, but they only made me feel like more of an imposter. One night, I made the mistake of going to a friend's party. It was my first time seeing many of my old college friends since my diagnosis. As I walked through the door, it felt like the music had suddenly gone dead. I could feel everyone's eyes glued to my bald head and to the tubes of my catheter protruding above my right breast. When I made eye contact with people, some quickly looked away. Conversations were awkward as acquaintances stared at their shoes or quickly excused themselves to make another drink or to go to the bathroom. A few minutes later, I told my friends I needed some fresh air. I jumped into a cab, hot, inky mascara tears streaming down my face as I gave the driver directions to take me home. My mom sat on the edge of my bed, rubbing my back with the palms of her hands as I cried myself to sleep that night. I wanted my old life back, and I missed the way I had looked before. While my new situation was entirely unfamiliar territory for me, the feeling of wishing that I were in a different body, that I looked more similar to those around me, hearkened back to the way I had felt about myself in middle school. Now, however, I had a different perspective on the outsider complex of my youth. I was angry at the teenage version of myself for nitpicking over the color and texture of my hair, when now I had no hair at all. Almost a year after my diagnosis, with three inches of freshly grown baby hair covering my head, I prepared for the most difficult chapter of my cancer treatment yet, a risky bone marrow transplant that would be my only shot at a cure. My doctors told me point blank that I had a 35% chance of surviving the procedure. The odds were stacked against me. Surrounded by so much uncertainty, I began to search for things that I could control. I realized that the outward signifiers of cancer could only define me if I allowed them to, and I became determined to enter the transplant unit looking and feeling like Suleika, and not just an anonymous cancer patient. Growing up, I'd always wanted to wear the coveted cheerleader uniform to be a girly girl, but I didn't want that anymore. I needed to look inward and to figure out what my own uniform was going to be. I adopted a brown leather jacket lent to me by my best friend Lizzie. Boots with spikes on the heel staring at me in the store window? I'll take them. The final piece of my new look fell into place just five days before I was scheduled to enter the bone marrow transplant unit. I went to Astor Place Hairstylist, a cavernous basement barber shop in downtown Manhattan, known for its famously low prices, multilingual barbers, star-studded clientele, and no-nonsense customer service. I wanted to get a simple buzz cut, a preemptive strike against the chemo that would soon make my hair fall out for a second time. When I explained my situation to my barber, Miguel Laura, he suggested I take the buzz cut one step further by getting something called hair tattoos. The idea of a tattoo scared me at first but Miguel reassured me that he would simply use his clippers to groove a spiral design into the half-inch layer of hair that remained. What the hell, I said. After all, I had little left to lose. My new style made me look like I was tough, even when I didn't always feel that way. I was adding armor, and I liked the way it fit. As I walked out onto the street, a construction worker whistled at me. Cool hair, he shouted out. It was the first time since my diagnosis that someone had made a remark on my appearance that wasn't illness-related. While cancer may not be a choice, both style and attitude are. I wish I could have told this to my 15-year-old self. 
trying to make my unruly brown locks blonde back then was as futile an effort as trying to pretend that I had hair after my chemotherapy. I would never go so far as to call cancer a gift. After all, I would never give it to you for your birthday, but I would call it a teacher. My disease has taught me that I can far more effectively take control of my look by embracing it and having fun with it rather than forcibly trying to make it something that it's not. This approach toward my outward experience extends into a larger lesson. No matter what my life hurls my way, the best way to face the challenge is to lean into it and to make it my own. Eventually, my hair would slowly start to grow back. As soon as it was long enough, I went to see Miguel for more hair tattoos. I shared photographs of my new hairstyle on social media, and within a few months, several other young cancer patients had gone to see Miguel to get their own hair tattoos. The tattoos had shown us a new way to have fun with the hair that we had, or that we didn't have, and it had given us a newfound confidence in our skin. I survived the bone marrow transplant. With each day, I'm getting stronger and healthier, and in the time since then, I've come to appreciate the benefits of sticking out in a crowd, even though I don't always seek out the circumstances. Today, my hair is about two inches long, short and spiky, just like my mother's. When people tell me how much we look alike, I smile and thank them for the compliment. I'm still a long way from having waist-length Rapunzel tresses, but the funny thing is I don't want them anymore. Short hair is starting to grow on me. So, so like, uh, how long ago did you write this piece? I wrote this piece about three years ago. I had just finished uh, almost four years of cancer treatment, and I was reemerging back uh, into the real world and trying to figure out how I fit. So, how much has changed for you in the last three years? Well, for starters, my hair is no longer two inches long. I used to have very curly hair and it grew back incredibly straight uh, and it's about shoulder length now um, which is a fun new experiment to have to contend with every morning in the mirror but um, life has changed in expected and unexpected ways I think that in our culture uh, we think of things like the end of treatment after a long illness is something to celebrate. But as much as it has been a milestone uh, that I feel grateful to have reached, it's also come with its own fair of challenges. So today you sit here cancer-free? I do. Uh, Last week I actually celebrated my five-year bone marrow transplant anniversary, which in the world of cancer patients signifies that you're no longer just cancer-free, but actually uh, cured. How does one celebrate something like that? Um, Well, I was in Mexico, and I treated myself to a very, very big pina colada. (laughs) Um, But truthfully, to me, um, whether it's coming from a place of superstition or something else, I actually find it difficult to celebrate uh, those milestones uh, because they represent so much. Of course, they represent 
the positive, which is that you're still here and that you've survived to even have such a milestone. Uh, but at the same time, it's also a marker of, uh, you know, a difficult period in my life. And I think there's pressure in our culture uh, to, you know, overstate these things uh, and to be overly positive. And that doesn't leave a lot of room left over for, for the nuances and, and the very real, you know, difficult aspects of those experiences. You referenced the challenges. What were among the biggest challenges for you? Well, I think in the same way that someone who's emerging back into the real world, uh, perhaps after serving time in war, serving time in prison, uh, coming back to quote-unquote normal life after a long illness, you know, brings up these themes of reentry. Um, and I think that for me, there was so much emphasis on getting to the point where I was done with treatment that uh, I hadn't really given much thought to what would come after and what that would look like. And I found myself in a way feeling um, that the hardest part of my cancer experience in a way was once the cancer was gone. I didn't have a roadmap. I didn't have a team of doctors telling me what to do. Um, and I couldn't just go back to being the person that I'd been before that experience. So the process of figuring out who I was in the wake and in the aftermath of this experience was a struggle. Um, but it was also a really interesting and rich time in my life where I felt like a newborn baby who was learning things again for the first time and who was exploring and, and figuring out, you know, who it was that I wanted to be and how I fit back into the world. So who do you turn to in a situation like that? I would imagine you have a support network, people that you're talking to constantly to try to figure that all out. Um, you know, that's a difficult question because I think that during my treatment, the people I turned to uh, was this very tight-knit group of friends, of fellow cancer comrades that I'd met at the hospital. Um and out of those 10 friends that I met, only three of us are still here. So I think there's a very real challenge um, in trying to figure out what the answer to your question is. Who do you talk to about these things? Um, because healthy friends and family want so badly for you to be okay that I think uh, maybe the unexpected byproduct of that is that it can be difficult uh, to speak to maybe um, the more unsettling uh, aspects of what it feels like to reemerge from that. At the same time, you know, to talk about it with friends who are still in treatment uh, feels uncomfortable. Uh, you don't want to sound ungrateful. After all, you're the lucky one. Um, so for me, truthfully, the people that I turn to uh, are authors, our books, our words, um, and I've found so much solace and so much inspiration in the works of writers like Sarah Manguso or Audre Lorde, um, who kind of unpack these themes that relate to illness and who are able to kind of look beyond those societal pressures around how we're meant to perform being well or how we're meant to perform being sick. And um, I found that to be a really rich space, uh, both personally and intellectually. 
You mentioned that you turned to writers, but you yourself are a writer. You turned to writing while you were dealing with cancer. Yeah, so um, when I graduated from college, uh, I had dreams of becoming a war correspondent. And uh, the very same week that I actually called in sick to work and never uh, returned, uh, though I didn't know that was going to happen at the time, I had gotten my first job uh, and what I thought and hoped might be my way of getting my foot into the door, which was an opportunity to work as a stringer for the International Herald Tribune in Tunisia, uh, where my family is from, and where the revolution that would later be known as the Arab Spring had just broken out. And I never got to do that. Um, I never got to go to Tunisia. I never got to report on the revolution that was taking place, and that was a source of, you know, profound disappointment for me. Um, But it wasn't until much later, until I had been sick for many months, that it occurred to me that I uh, could write in the first person. I had always thought of myself as someone who would help other people tell their stories. Um, But suddenly I found myself living uh, literally in a bubble, in a tiny hospital room in isolation. Uh, I wasn't allowed to leave and anyone who entered had to wear a face mask and scrubs. Um, And I couldn't travel anywhere. I couldn't interview other people. Uh, And I started thinking about how I might uh, do a different kind of reporting on a very different kind of conflict zone. And I started essentially reporting from the front lines of my hospital bed. And it was a revelation for me. Uh, It gave me a job to do other than just being sick. And I took myself very seriously. Nurses would come uh, to my room uh, to draw blood. And I'd ask them to come back a little bit later because I had a deadline. You were working. My deadline was completely self-imposed. and Nobody was expecting work from me or asking to publish it. Uh, But I needed that. uh, And I found a great strength in that new practice of writing. This was a blog. So I started just by writing in my journal. And um, then I decided to create a very simple WordPress blog online. Um, And about two weeks later, a college professor of mine, uh, who's a journalist and an editor, passed it on to a colleague of his at the New York Times. Uh, who asked me if I'd be interested in turning the blog into a column. Uh, so, And then the series Life Interrupted was born. It did, yeah. A lesson in keeping in touch with your professors. <laughs> what kind of feedback did you get when your story hit the New York Times? So my column uh, went live just a few days before I was supposed to undergo a bone marrow transplant, which is an incredibly dangerous and risky procedure. So it was this bizarre confluence of milestones, one incredibly thrilling and the other incredibly terrifying. Um, And I don't know that I had expectations or that I knew, you know, what to even want from the column. Uh, But the morning that the column came out, I opened my email and I was sitting in my hospital bed And I had hundreds of emails, and it was this chilling feeling of having just spent 
a year and a half completely cut off from the world and going from, you know, bubble girl to this unwitting confessor to countless strangers. Do you think we're still battling a stigma of cancer, that cancer somehow still carries a stigma? I think cancer is one of the more sympathetic illnesses. Um, That being said, I think any illness, any disability certainly carries a stigma. Um, I think that for me, within my cancer treatment, the biggest stigma that I felt wasn't just as a cancer patient, but was as a young woman. So topics like infertility and menopause that were side effects of my cancer treatment were never discussed with me. Uh, I found out about my infertility by going on WebMD, which is the go-to for a lot of patients when they have questions uh, before they ask their doctors. I found out about uh, the menopause by talking to my group of girlfriends who were in treatment and saying, you know, I'm having hot flashes, I'm having this. And um, they would say, oh, me too. And we kind of pieced it together uh, amongst ourselves. And I ended up writing about those experiences. And they were some of the scarier stories that I've written because I felt a lot of shame. Uh, No 24-year-old wants to write about menopause. There's nothing sexy or cool about that. Uh, But they were also the stories that I received the greatest responses to. Um, And I think it's pushed me to, uh, when I sit down to write, to try and write about those things that scare me. Uh, Because at least for me, they're often, you know, the more honest and and interesting places that I haven't wanted to explore. Um, And uh, when I wrote about the menopause, uh, for example, I received a phone call uh, from the hospital where I'm treated, and they said, we're so happy you published this article uh, because we actually have a sexual health clinic at the hospital. And my response was, that's wonderful, but it shouldn't take writing a story in the New York Times for me to be connected to the resources that already exist. Uh, so a lot of the work that I do in my advocacy isn't trying to reinvent the wheel. It's trying to connect people uh, to the support and uh, to the things that already exists that oftentimes just kind of get lost in communication. Do you do anything differently in your day-to-day now that you're AC compared to your BC days? I wish I could tell you that I run marathons and meditate and um, drink green juice. Uh, I think that the biggest difference for me has been, you know, taking stock of the ways in which my body is not the same. Uh, I'm healthy and I feel great, but I also have uh, less energy than maybe my friends who haven't had illness. Uh, And I've had to learn to figure out how to navigate that. Um, And I've learned, you know, that I can only do three things really well uh, in the day. And if I try to do more than that, then I end up feeling exhausted or I pay for it the next day. And what that's done is it's, you know, had a a focusing effect on my life. Um, I'm much more cautious about how I invest my time and where I put my energies. And that's a shift that I'm really grateful for um, because 
I do the things that I want to do. Um, and there's just less room and less time and less energy for anything that doesn't fit that bill. What are you working on right now? So I'm actually writing a book about not cancer per se, but reentry and um, everything that came after. Uh, and it's centered around the story of a very long road trip that I took uh, over the course of three and a half months after I finished treatment. And, you know, part of that for me was just trying to figure out how to be independent again. I learned how to drive, and it was really the first time since my diagnosis that I've been out on my own again. Uh, but the other thing that I did was that I visited some of the strangers who wrote to me. And it was those, you know, moments of human connection with people who are complete strangers who for, you know, all intensive purposes, you should never cross paths with or wouldn't have any reason to, um, that were like some of the more remarkable moments and, and meetings that I've ever had. Is that book yet titled? It is called Between Two Kingdoms, and it's forthcoming from Random House whenever I get my act together and, and finish my draft. Suleika, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Suleika Jawad is a writer, advocate, public speaker, and cancer survivor. She's online at suleikajawad.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Zach Zalas. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.